Good morning to everyone who's here, everybody that's online. We're glad that you're here for us for worship this morning. Our scripture reading this morning uh, is not typically a Christmas uh, reading. It's typically a Holy Week, Good Friday reading, but I think it'll make sense uh, in just a moment. This is from Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3. Who can believe what we have heard? And for whose sake has the Lord's arm been revealed? He grew up like a young plant before us, like a root from dry ground. He possessed no splendid form for us to see, no desirable appearance. He was despised and avoided by others, a man who suffered, who knew sickness well. Like someone from whom people hid their faces, he was despised. And we didn't think about him. This is the word of God for the people of God. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, Merry Christmas. And it is Christmas, by the way, even though we start earlier and earlier every year, technically the season of Christmas doesn't start until Christmas Day. That makes today the third day of Christmas, the day that traditionally you give your true love, you know it, right? Three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. If you are your true love have forgotten, I'm sure the stores will be open as soon as the service ends. Everything's 50% off after Christmas, so that's today. And for most of us, Christmas isn't over quite yet, right? We're still sort of living in the glow of Christmas two days later. Most of us are still enjoying the leftovers at this point. Some of us still have Christmas cookies to eat. Most of our homes are still decorated. I didn't notice anybody taking them down yesterday. Some of us still have guests with us at home. Some of us are still off of work or out of school. The gifts we got are still new and novel and interesting and, and enjoyable, right? But have you ever noticed, with all the months lead up to Christmas, like, you know, you start hearing the hymns, the carols, the songs earlier, the decorations come out earlier. Have you ever noticed how quickly Christmas ends after Christmas? It just seems to come almost to a crashing halt. How quickly the leftovers start tasting left over, right? How soon the Christmas tree stops, starts dropping needles and turning brown? How soon the, the, that strand of lights has gone out, you know, either on the tree or around the house? How soon the new toys need batteries? How soon all these lovely, lovely guests start feeling a little bit crowded around the house? How soon the kids start getting bored and restless? How soon before the credit card bills start arriving? It doesn't take long, right? Christmas, all the buildup leading to Christmas Day, and then it's over. And pretty quickly, life gets back to normal. And oftentimes, we welcome the normal. As much as we love the coming, we start craving normal. And how much have we talked about normal this year in a pandemic? It's the craving of normal lives. Well, I've wondered sometimes about what it was like for Mary and Joseph in the days following the birth of Jesus. 
how quickly their lives return to something that might have looked like normal. If you think about all the carols we just sang, if you think about all the emphasis in the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus, it's really all about the miraculous. A virgin mother who becomes pregnant with the Savior of the world, a miraculous birth, angels' announcement, the, the heavenly host gathering in a field above Bethlehem to, to announce to the shepherds that the Savior of the world is born, wise men coming from far, following the star, bringing gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It's all miraculous. It's all extraordinary. But we forget sometimes, and we fail to mention that this miraculous story, this extraordinary story, extraordinary birth, was surrounded by ordinary. We don't, we don't talk very much about this long, probably seven-day journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, probably on foot. We, we don't talk a lot about Mary's labor pain. Or what delivery was like. We, we don't talk a lot about the reality. We talk about baby in a manger. But we don't talk about the reality of that was an animal stable. Somebody had to get the, the sheep or the goats or the cows out of there. We don't talk about how far away from home they were. Who was surrounding Mary and Joseph but they gave birth to their first child together. And then what about the days after Jesus' birth. What, what about after the, the visitations and the angels were gone? How soon did the stable start to stink? How soon did Mary and Joseph start to get hungry and somebody had to go find food in a strange city? How soon did Jesus have his first dirty diaper? How soon did Mary or Joseph get their first decent nap? How soon did one of them look at the other and say, Okay, we have a baby. Now what do we do? I still remember coming home from the hospital the first time with my daughter, looking at my wife like, this is for real, isn't it? Like, what, what, now what are we supposed to do with a baby in our house? Right? When did that settle in? The, the big theological word we use for the birth of Jesus and the life of Jesus is incarnation. The word incarnation means that that Jesus, unlike any other human who's ever lived, was fully God, is fully God, and fully human. Both, equally, fully God, fully human. Sometimes we say the Nicene Creed in church, we say, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven by the spirit, of, by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. This baby that we celebrate at Christmas, lying in a manger, was God wrapped up in human flesh. Colossians one nineteen says, "In Jesus, all of the fullness of God." was pleased to dwell. Now that makes Jesus a pretty extraordinary human. No one else we can make that claim about. But I want to argue today that that doesn't only make Jesus an extraordinary human, that he was both God and human, but the incarnation also makes God an extraordinary God. I mean, what kind of God 
would wrap himself in human flesh? What kind of God would come down from heaven for our salvation? What kind of God would experience a normal human birth? What kind of God would be so humble, so loving? What kind of God would be so risk-taking to become so vulnerable for us? That's part of what we mean by incarnation. Not just that the man, Jesus, was also God, but that the God of the heavens became human and a baby. The writer Rachel Hell Evans says, There are few doctrines of the Christian faith more astounding to me than the Incarnation. The remarkable notion that the God of the universe was once vulnerable as a fetus and hungry as a baby. Now, if you had a Bible with you, I might have you open to the four Gospels and, and show you where you can find the birth stories. There, there's just a couple chapters, maybe three total in the four Gospels, that deal with Jesus' miraculous birth. Then the rest of the Gospels, all the other chapters, deal with the last three years of Jesus' life, from about age 30 to about age 33. And those passages, those chapters, are full of miracle stories. You know them. Jesus healing the sick, driving out demons, Walking on water, calming the storms, turning water into wine, feeding the multitudes, and then finally, of course, conquering death and rising from the grave. But that leaves about 29 years of life that we don't know much about. I mean, what was going on with Jesus from the birth story until he appears out in the desert to be baptized by John? We get one little story when he's 12, but that's not much. What was going on? And, and it's possible, of course, that he performed miracles during those 29 years, but we don't hear about them. There's no, there's no record of them. And so most people assume that the most part of, for the most part, those 29 years were just spent being human, living a normal, ordinary life. You might even call it common, typical, mundane. I mean, as a, as a baby, he had to learn how to walk and talk, eventually feed himself. He went through all the, the stages of going from infancy into childhood, into adolescence, into becoming a, an adult. As he got older, I'm sure he had chores around the house. Maybe he learned how to help his father, Joseph, the carpenter, right? He learned how to interact with his brothers and sisters and neighbors and his parents. He went to the Sabbath where he learned the scriptures and the Jewish tradition. Luke 2.52 says, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now, I just use the word ordinary, common. In some ways, though, compared to you and I, if we've lived ordinary common lives, Jesus lived a less than ordinary life, less than common. He was born into poverty. He was from a place called Nazareth, which was just a very small, poor village in an area called Galilee, which was considered the backwoods of Israel. When he came on the scene, they asked, can anything good come from Nazareth? People, people looked down their nose 
at people from Nazareth. At this point in his life, nobody knew that he was related to anyone famous. He was a son of the King David, an ancestor, but they didn't know that. He wasn't rich or powerful, wasn't well-connected. He was living really a fairly hidden, obscure, private life. Which brings me to the passage I read just a moment ago, Isaiah 53, 2. He grew up like a plant before us, like a root from dry ground. He possessed no splendid form for us to see, no desirable appearance. Or I like the message version. He says, the servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over. That, that says to me that before Jesus began his public ministry and started performing miracles and was followed by crowds, before that, he might have passed you on the street and you would have just thought, here's just another guy. He might have come and sat among us in worship and we wouldn't have noticed anything special about him. His life, like ours, was ordinary. And maybe compared to us, less than what we would consider ordinary. Fulton Sheen writes, Divinity is always where one least expects to find it. Which probably is why so many people in Jesus' day didn't believe he was the one God had sent. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, God turns to the very places from which humans tend to turn away. But that's the message of the incarnation, that God didn't just take on flesh. The divinity merged itself with the common, the everyday, the mundane, the typical, even the poor and the oppressed. Now, if I just did a survey among us this morning and said, tell me, tell me some of the miracle stories you know in the Bible, we would all be able to name them because that's usually the stories we tell in church. We teach our children. It's about miracle stories. Think about it. Noah and the flood, right? Moses and the burning bush. The Pharaoh and the plagues. Moses sticking his staff in the, 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 the water of the Red Sea and the parting and everybody walking across on dry land the manna in the wilderness, the walls of Jericho falling down, the Israelites miraculously defeating the Philistines, and on and on, and of course, the birth and life of Jesus. We know these stories. But interspersed with them throughout Scripture are more non-miraculous stories, stories about conflict that needs to be resolved, stories about famines, that have to be survived. Stories about marriages. Stories about babies. Stories about moving. Stories about doing business. Stories about home life. Resolving conflict at home. Raising children. Serving the needs of others. I have this theory, and I've never done the work to actually prove this theory, but I think I'm right. If you take every miracle mentioned in Scripture, every one, and make a list, count them out, figure out how many there are. And then take the number of years that the Bible represents, however many thousands that might be, and divide the number of years into the number of miracles, I'm betting that you wouldn't come up with one miracle a year for the whole Bible. And I'll take that even further. 
there were some miracles that everybody saw, right? All the Israelite slaves saw the plagues in, this, in Egypt. All of them crossed on dry land through the Red Sea. Jesus performed miracles. He fed the multitudes, right? Thousands saw him do that. But most of the miracle stories in the Bible were just witnessed by a few people. A couple people here, one person there. In fact, Jesus often told people, don't tell anybody about this. Let's just keep this a secret. What's my point? The Bible's full of miraculous stories. But I think I'm right when I say that most people who lived in biblical times, God's people, the Israelites, most of them never witnessed a miracle. Most of them never had an angel come visit. Most of them never heard the audible voice of God. The overwhelming majority of people in biblical times were people like you and me getting up every day to do the work that needed to be done, to relate to our neighbors, to have good marriages, to take care of our children, to do business with others, all in a way that honors God. Overwhelmingly, the story of Scripture is about normal stuff done in a God-honoring way. Few of us in this life will experience miracles of what we would call biblical proportion. But all of us go to work, go to school, buy groceries, cook food, clean the house, vote, pay our taxes. How do we find God in the midst of the ordinary, the typical, the mundane? You know, one of the challenges we've had of worshiping out here is dealing with the world, right? Sirens go by. Loud trucks go by. Some days it's hot. Some days it's cold. We're wearing all these masks. Like we're dealing with illness. It sure would be nice to go in the sanctuary where everything is safe and clean and isolated. We push the world away. And let me tell you, I like going in there too. In some ways, isn't it interesting symbolic? We find a way to worship in the midst of life and reality, in the midst of pandemic, in the midst of whatever kind of weather God throws at us, right? Jesus came to us as God in flesh, not just the extraordinary, but in the ordinary. Barbara Brown Taylor says, what is saving my life now is the conviction that there is no spiritual treasure to be found apart from the bodily experiences of human life on earth. My life depends on engaging the most ordinary physical activities with the most exquisite attention I can give them. My life depends on ignoring all touted distinctions between secular and sacred, physical and spiritual, body and soul. What is saving my life now is becoming more fully human Trusting that there is no way to God apart from real life in the real world. Now don't get me wrong. I love Christmas. I love the carols we just sang. I love the decorations. I love all the festivities. Christmas is one of my favorite times of year. And absolutely believe the birth of Christ deserves celebration. There is a place in this world for feasting and partying and celebrating. Because we, we are so grateful for what God has done for us. 
There's the song you probably hear on the radio. I wish it was Christmas all year long, right? But do we really? Do we really? Or would Christmas start to not be so special if it were all year long? Isn't it true that sometimes the extraordinary is extraordinary because it's bookended by the ordinary? It's the ordinary before the extraordinary. It's the ordinary after the extraordinary that keeps the extraordinary extraordinary. Even those three miraculous years of Jesus often occurred unexpectedly as Jesus was encountering people doing normal things. A blind man begging beside the road. A woman going for water at the well. Fishermen after another unsuccessful night of fishing. A wedding where they run out of wine. A tax collector collecting taxes. People gathering for meals together. People just going to the Sabbath as they did every Sabbath day. Then the Savior came into the scene unexpectedly and changed everything. Doing ordinary things. There's this verse hidden in the Gospel of Matthew in the birth story. It says, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel. Which means what? God with us. That's the whole point of Jesus coming. That's the whole point of the incarnation. That in flesh, God is with us. Has God been with you on your Christmas Day celebration? I'm sure he has. Has God been with you as we've worshipped together in person and online? I believe God has. Has God been with us in the special carols? I believe God has. But maybe the point of Christmas, maybe the point of the incarnation, is to remind us that God is equally present in the less celebratory parts of life. In the going to work and school, in the cleaning the house, in the taking out the trash, in the going to work, and working through the, the challenges of every day, even in a pandemic. Jesus isn't just Emmanuel on Christmas. Jesus is also Emmanuel when we take our Christmas trees out to the curb. Jesus is also Emmanuel when the family goes home. Jesus is also Emmanuel when the holiday ends. Maybe the point of Christmas, the point of the incarnation, is to open our, wise, our eyes a little wider and wonder at the incarnation so their eyes are a little wider as we live our everydays and see Jesus among us in the Monday. Let's pray. And so right now, Lord, would you open our eyes a little wider? Remind us that you came to us to be with us not just in the extraordinary, but in the ordinary. May we look for you there as we try to live faithfully in all that we do and all that we say as we strive to live out the spirit of Christmas all year long. Open our eyes. See you more clearly in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name.